Listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is the Evan Solomon Show. Hi, Canada. How you doing? Coast to coast to coast. Big shows on. I'm Evan Solomon, and I am delighted to bring some great guests. The war room is here as we uh, get set, settled in. Big conservative, only conservative leadership. English language debate tonight in Edmonton. It is going to be hot fire. I've spoken to most of the candidates. And their folks, they are ready. It is going. I'm going to break it down for you today. What's at stake for Pierre Polyev? What's at stake for Jean Charest? What's at stake for Leslin Lewis? What's at stake for the first time we're going to see Patrick Brown in the race? And I'll let you know. There's still Scott Aitchison and Roman Baber, or Baber rather, but they're not going to win. There's no polling that says so, but they may be consequential. In terms of down-ballot support. But this is going to be... The first one was a eye-gouging, lose-your-catch-up, pull-off-your-nose, bare-knuckle, kick-to-the-shin cage match that I've never seen before. No polite, we're all conservatives here. This is more like... You're not a conservative. You're not a conservative. You're a liar. You're a liar. You're wrecking the party. You're wrecking the party. I mean, it's, and it's going to get worse. The People think, oh, they're going to be above the fray. Last time was a disaster. It's not going to, it's going to be tough. There's going to be no belt that things will be below because the gloves are off. The belts will be hit below. And I think the format will be different. I think Tom Clark, the moderator, will try to hold things together. I hope he doesn't get in the way. Like any good ref, you don't want to be part of the game. So, you know, in your over-attempt to avoid this becoming a disgraceful mess, don't take over. No one's, no one's voting for the moderator. I've moderated these things. I was one of the questioners in the last federal election. There was a report about that last time. It didn't, wasn't, the format wasn't good. We all knew it. Too many questioners. I was part of it. The planning, the execution of it. I was on stage with Justin Trudeau and Aaron O'Toole and... Jugmeet Singh, leader of the block and leader of the green. Like, I got it. I've done that. I'll tell you what people don't want. We need more of the moderator. No. You need to hear candidates go at it. And if the candidates are deciding to act like they are in a back alley at 2 a.m. after seven drinks, then that's fine. People will know. If you're so above the fray that you don't engage, people might think they are out of it. It's a hard thing to do. What these six people are going to do on stage tonight is hard. And the tone is different. It's 2022. The front runner, Pierre Polyev, is an attack. He's comfortable attacking. He likes it. He's good at it. His web, his cutlery of choice are axes and swords. He likes it. He's always been like that. He's smart. He knows his files. He does not. He's not afraid. He doesn't throw an insult with an "I'm sorry." He goes for it. Day one of the campaign, he called Jean Charest a corrupt liberal. 
Like, this is how he's talking to a guy who's running to be the leader of the conservative party. There's more integrity in the baby finger of a trucker than you had in your corrupt liberal government, he told Jean Charest last time. You think it's going to get better? Patrick Brown and he have been fighting each other since university. These are career politicians. Patrick Brown loves hockey. Patrick Brown, I just spoke to Patrick Brown before this program. He's ready for the debate, he says. He's ready to go. Now, now everyone's got a different style here. The front runner is Pierre Polyev. He's got the most endorsements. He's raised the most money. He's in Alberta where he's going to have massive support. His rallies there have been absolute massive mayhem. He's going to use that. Is he going to back down and start being a front runner and show that he can be prime ministerial? No. He knows he's got to attack. He is not going to be afraid to call Jean Charest a liberal. He's going to, he hasn't backed off from his support of the trucking protest in Ottawa. He did an interview with one of the leaders of the movement recently, uh, just yesterday, on social media. And he talked about the World Economic Forum, the boogeyman of Davos, even though Stephen Harper was in Davos in 2010. Stephen Harper was in Davos at the World Economic Forum in 2012, where he announced the change to the CPP, moving it back from 67 to 65, even though one of his campaign leaders, the former minister, John Baird, was in Davos in 2014, alongside another supporter, Ed Fast who was then the Minister of International Trade, and the Harper government was touting how important it was to go to the World Economic Forum, how critical it was to Canada. This was a big part of the Harper agenda, the World Economic Forum. Now it's a boogeyman, six, seven years later. It's the boogeyman. It's terrible. So don't expect Mr. Polyevra to back off from his center-right populism and his attack. That's what's got him into the, in the front runner. If you back off now, why would you change strategy? His whole brand is, a, I'm an unapologetic conservative. His whole brand is conservatives should stop apologizing for being conservative. His whole brand is we're not trying to be liberal light. His whole brand is I say what I say and I mean what I say and I'm not going to change. Then you got Jean Charest. Jean Charest's pitch is this. I'm a winner. I can handle it. I've done it. I can win in Quebec. We need Quebec. I can win in Ontario. I know how to deliver. You want law and order during the university protest? I crack down. I'm a law and order guy. He's used the truckers. I don't care that the truckers are popular with a certain part of the conservatives, according to Jean Charest, not popular with me. I think it's I'm a law and order guy. And you know what? Conservative leaders who win, like Doug Ford in Ontario, the front runner in that election, the guy who won a majority, guess what? He was for mandates. Guess what? He wanted to crack down on the occupation in, in Ottawa. Doug Ford called the emergency. Doug Ford supported the Emergencies Act, and he's going to win in Ontario. That is the charade pitch. And by the way, the same is true in Quebec. The conservatives in Quebec under François Legault, guess what? They're winning. And Charest's pitch is, that's the conservatives that win. Law and order, mandates, we hit the political center. That's the kind of conservative I'll be, and that's a win. If you can win in Ontario provincially and win in Quebec provincially, why should we avoid that? Follow that playbook. That's his position. And then Patrick Brown saying, I'm running a totally different campaign. The blue tent is too small. Face up to reality, folks. We need new members. We are overwinning in 
Alberta, and we need new communities. We need to look like the country. So if you really want to win in Ontario, like I did when I swept to victory as the leader of the, cons- uh, the Progressive Conservative Party in Ontario, bring in new members. So he's been underground signing up new members in cultural communities across the country. And he says, I'm going to show you the new Conservative Party is a center party, a progressive conservative party, and it has new members and it's going to look like the country. And when it looks like the country, it will vote like the country. When it votes like the country, we'll win government. That's his pitch. And then, Len- then there's Leslie Lewis. The lawyer, she's got a master's in environmental studies and the avowed social conservative. Yes, has she trafficked in conspiracy theories? She sure has. Yes, she has. You know, Davos, Great Reset stuff, vaccine conspiracy theory stuff. Sure, she, 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 she says, don't call it conspiracy theory. What else is it? It's not based on data. You know, Bill Gates taking over stuff. But she came in third last time, and do not underestimate Leslie Lewis. When she turned and wheeled on Pierre Polyev in the first debate about his support for the truckers, like he didn't support the truckers enough, that probably helped them, or that, B, what's your position on abortion? What's your position on abortion? Pro-choice or pro-life? That showed that the social conservatives are nobody's kingmakers. They are nobody, they're not there to give away their vote for down-ballot support. We're here to win. She is no longer someone's support. Les and Lewis are there to win. That is a wild dynamic. And by the way, no, no surprise today that the liberals just happened to have a new announcement about guns and a new announcement about abortion. Why? Because guns and abortion, they believe are shield issues for conservatives. So today they made two announcements about the most controversial issues. Why? To throw a wrench into the conservative race. Lots more next. From coast to coast to coast, the newsmakers talk here. This is the Evan Solomon Show. Discrimination, legislative creep, unconstitutional, a wrecking ball to the Constitution. Those were some of the explosive words that the Alberta, Alberta's top court, the Court of Appeal, used when in a four-to-one decision yesterday, they decided to announce that the federal government's bill that does environmental assessment on natural resource Projects like pipelines. It's called Bill C-69. You probably heard about it. Um, the Impact Assessment Act, it's called. The, it you know, assesses the impact on Indigenous communities, on health, and on, on the environment. The conservatives call it the no-pipeline law because they think that it's so such onerous um, issues that you can't build a pipeline in Canada because of it. But now the Alberta court... I said it's unconstitutional, and immediately the federal government said, well, we're going to challenge that in the Supreme Court. Now, you may have remembered this happened before during the carbon tax, the price on carbon. Remember, the federal government says we're going to put a price on carbon. The Alberta court said that that's unconstitutional. It was challenged in the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said it is constitutional, and Alberta lost. But this is like some kind of explosive decision. So I spoke to Canada's Justice Minister, David Lametti, about it, because he's going to be in charge of the challenge. And I said, what's your reaction to Alberta's top court's ruling? Well, look, we obviously disagree with the decision. We feel that the the Impact Assessment Act uh, is tailored to touch only federal areas of jurisdiction. 
that that apply to certain projects. Uh, it is carefully uh, carefully meant to do that. It's important to protect those those in environmental aspects. It's important to protect Indigenous rights, for example, in these projects. We feel, we felt from the beginning, that this act would result in better projects, better resource development projects, where, where the community was more involved, where the environment was better protected, where Indigenous, uh, where indigenous nations were, were involved from the get-go in terms of the process. Uh, we feel it's, it's UNDRIP compliant as a, as, a, as a statute. We've always cited it as UNDRIP compliant as a statute. And so we feel that it, it is very much in the spirit of cooperative federalism. It is very much in the spirit right. of good management and projects and protecting the environment. And we definitely feel it's within our jurisdiction. Okay, uh, I'm reading, I'm going to read, Minister, I'm sure you've read it, the court's decision. They do not hold back their language. Um, this is a classic example of legislative creep, they say. Um, they say that if upheld, the legislative scheme would allow the government to essentially render worthless the natural resources of individual provinces by stopping their development. It would permanently alter the division of powers and forever place provincial governments in an economic chokehold controlled by the federal government. Your response? I disagree with all of that quite clearly. The, the, and the environment has long been held to be an area of shared jurisdiction. Uh, Justice Laforet said that in the Old Man River case, and that's, that was reaffirmed by the Supreme Court of Canada in the carbon pricing case. It's an area of shared jurisdiction. The environment is something, environmental knowledge, environmental protection is something that has evolved since 1867. I don't want to freeze the Constitution in, in terms of the division of the, the actual, you know, the, to include everything that might have been thought of in 1867. So it's very much a part of federal jurisdiction, shared jurisdiction. We've carefully tailored that act. And we feel that the, the jurisprudence goes against this decision. I would also point you to the very, very strong dissent in this decision um, by one of the justices. By one, uh, just, that, yeah, by one justice. Well, and, and uh, it, is, it is compelling. It's compelling reading. And I, and I would submit to you that both the language chosen in the decision uh, and the reasoning in the decision is, is far more compelling, far more persuasive legally than that of the majority. Right. Uh, the four judges say, in fact, that the environment like this is not um, uh, protected by the Constitution. They say it's, quote, an existential threat. That's what, how they call it, an existential threat that is pressing and consequential uh, to the division of powers guaranteed by the Constitution and thus to Canada itself. I'll read you one, one more part of this. They say, through this legislative scheme, Parliament has taken a wrecking ball to the constitutional right of citizens in Alberta and Saskatchewan and other provinces to have their natural resources developed. Um, and then they say it's also discrimination. Again, these are hot terms. Um, what is your response to this? And Because it sounds like whatever you think, the federal government thinks, the Alberta, four members of the Alberta top court think this is discrimination, legislative creep, and it's clearly divisive. Well, again, I disagree. We, we tailored the legislation to touch only federal areas of jurisdiction. Uh, we tailored a process that that would be looked at carefully uh, in, in terms of assessing projects. Um, and, and we stuck to, as I said, we stuck to the areas that we, we feel are quite justified by the jurisprudence. Uh, remember, this same court uh, felt that the, the carbon pricing scheme was also unconstitutional, and, and that, that, that too was found to be uh, not the prevailing uh, interpretation by the Supreme Court of Canada. 
So I'm pretty confident uh, moving forward uh, that we have we have crafted a piece of legislation that serves Canadians, serves the environment, serves Albertans. Um, it's not simply up to a province uh, to determine all environmental aspects of uh, a piece of uh, you know a particular project in its own in its own provincial process. When there may be spillover into other provinces, when it may touch upon areas of federal jurisdiction like protected species, for example, or indigenous rights. And so we, we need to be we need to work together with the provinces. But certainly, uh, I would say to you that the, the the kind of language that you see in the dissenting opinion, which is much more measured, uh, I, I think would be would be indicative of, of how I feel about it. The, Minister, the court argues the majority that this is a slippery slope. And, and I'll get, let me just quote it again. Were the courts to uphold this law? All provincial industries, they write, every aspect of a province's economy would be subject to federal regulation. It would undermine the division of powers uh, and permanently alter the division of powers and forever place provincial governments in this economic chokehold controlled by the federal government. Those are their words. Does this, have, does this piece of legislation allow the federal government to take over other aspects of um, provincial jurisdiction. That's what the court's arguing, that it that it's, gives you too wide a berth. It's a slippery slope. I disagree strongly with that interpretation. I, I guess I have to admit I don't like slippery slope arguments generally. But it, it only is in areas of federal jurisdiction. Can, Canadian businesses, Canadians have lived with a division of powers, division between federal and provincial jurisdictions since 1867. Um, and we'll continue to do that as, as the country evolves, as issues evolve, as challenges evolve like the environment that's the existential crisis here and and we need to work together uh moving forward uh, but to they, assess but they're saying this is a yeah i i guess they're saying that this is that the environment is being used to erode that power just one last if i may minister because i only got you for a minute the i'm intrigued your your view the court in alberta um argues that this is also taking a wrecking ball to um, the ability of capital to be invested in uh, the Alberta economy and the Saskatchewan economy. Is it the court's place in your mind, in a judgment like this, to argue for capital investment and the impact, economic impact? Is that the job of a court? Well, the, the, the job of a court is to assess the, the case in front of it. Uh, I'd, I'd rather not comment on, uh, on language uh, that that might be argued to be beyond uh, what the court uh, was asked to do in that particular case. It is, it, look, it is up to the federal government, it's up to provincial governments to regulate within their areas of jurisdiction and to work together where there are overlapping areas. This is an overlapping area of jurisdiction. It has long been held to be. Uh, and there will be investment that goes into this overlapping area of jurisdiction. That means both governments have a role here to work within their areas of jurisdiction and to work together and to work with, with industry, to work with environmental groups and Indigenous peoples. And we are certainly trying to do all of that with this piece of legislation to ensure that in the process, every voice is heard. And that is the Justice Minister, David Labenny. I will just give you this. Um, will the Supreme Court overturn this? We don't know. We'll wait and see. But the Alberta top court, their their view on this, and this has to do with pipelines. This has to do with the price of gas. This has to do with a lot of stuff that affect our lives. It was, it was such, I've read a lot of these decisions. It was so politically charged. It was so hot. They strayed so far from the judgment into things like investment. It seemed like they know they're going to lose in the legal sense. So they wrote it as a political document. That's what it read like. 
Um, an amazing story coming up next. Sorting through the changes, here's Evan Solomon. Welcome back to the program. You know, we got a housing crisis. We talk about it all the time. If you're in the province of Ontario, it's a huge issue in the election. If you're paying attention to the conservative leadership race, it's a huge issue. And if you're just someone who try to break into the housing market, if you're trying to uh, buy a house, it's hard. Interest rates are up. So this is like one of the big issues. And so we wanted to talk about a totally unique way to create property, sustainable housing. Is it developing old churches, old church properties into housing? Tim Blair is the CEO of something called Kindred Works. And they they basically take properties that belong to the church and they turn them into housing. And they're talking about 34,000 people by 2037. And um, it is a pleasure to have Tim Blair join us. Hi, Tim. Hey, Evan. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Tell me a bit about uh, um, what this company is. Is, is, is it, are you working with all churches, the United Church, or, or any, any church? Yeah, we, we were launched uh, by initial investment by the United Church. They really saw a huge um, opportunity to deliver impact in, in the communities as congregations have for generations, for generations to come, by really unlocking that value for social purpose um, that included housing and, and really addressing the housing crisis and the climate crisis at the same time. Okay, um, t- tell me about the properties. Are they all United Church properties? Primarily right now, we're working uh, on United Church properties. We have eight in planning. Our goal is to have 20 uh, through planning, which equates to about 600 units, 1,500 units in total by the end of the year uh, working through. But we're working with other denominations uh, as well who have embraced the idea of using these underutilized properties to, to deliver impact and address the things that you're talking about, like the housing crisis. Okay, so t- talk about these. Now, are these, the reason these properties are available, are they just, you know, congregations, frankly, are, are no longer what they used to be? A lot of churches are saying, look, we, we got to sell off property to survive. We just, we, do, we can't fill the pews. And this is a way of transforming that into a social, uh, bu- like a socially sustainable business. Absolutely. And I think it was recognition that as congregations were dwindling, they couldn't support their buildings and often they were sold off and luxury condos uh, were put up in their place. Uh, And really the denomination, the United Church, felt that there had to be a better solution, one that could retain the properties, if you will, in the common good and continuing to service their neighborhoods. So um, they see this as an opportunity to leave legacy and legacy in the neighborhood huh. that they've served. Speaking of, to t- Tim Blair, CEO of Kindred Works. So does the church own Kindred Works? Is it a private company? Like, how does it, what's the relationship to the church and what will happen to these homes? Like, who owns them? So we're, we're an independent company with an independent board uh, that was founded with an initial investment by the United Church. Um, and we act as the development manager and long-term manager uh, of these buildings. Really, we think of ourselves, if you will, as the caretaker 
uh, and the caretaker of these buildings over the long term for the people who will make them a home and a place. Um, and the church uh, and the properties are, are retained um, in, in, in ownership of, of the denomination so that we can make sure that that impact and that social impact uh, is lasting over a long oh, period Oh, so the time. church still owns the properties. That's interesting. Yep. Uh, so do, tell me about the, what kind of housing they will be. Like, uh, is, it all, is it affordable housing? Because, you know, it, it would be, you know, kind of crazy if Kindred Spirits is doing this and then you're, you know, hey, it's a luxury condo in a former church. And, it, you know, how, what is it? Uh, no, our, our approach is to do 100% rental housing. Uh, and our commitment is a third or at least a third of those uh, will be with below market rents. Really, this is all new housing. So there's no housing dis- displacement um, and really creating that opportunity from townhomes to provide affordable front doors and backyards for families and three bedroom units um, to urban infill in our urban areas. So a really unique opportunity to deliver new housing uh, to our neighborhoods um, across the country. It's so interesting because you think, wait, so the United Church is basically getting into the landlord business, but they've always, you know, every church has real estate. But how is this different than just being a landlord? Yeah, absolutely. And we're, we're separating the management uh, from the church. Uh, and, and that's where Kindred Works steps in to care for these buildings over the long term as really that institutional asset manager. And then we partner with local affordable housing groups. Um, to screen and provide the tenants um, to make sure that our housing is meeting local needs and making sure that that housing is provided for for all equity-seeking groups that need long-term stable housing. So talk about these church, the buildings themselves. It kind of fast. I know there's one near Ottawa called the Queenswood United Church. So are you renovating the buildings? Are people going to like, you know, what? how do you transform a church into an apartment? Yeah, absolutely. In many of the community spaces, uh, that church space in St. Luke's in Toronto, which is right across from Allen Gardens and right behind Cabbage Town, is another great example, like Queenswood, where the existing church space will remain as community and cultural space uh, and able to serve a wider variety, whether that's from yoga classes to faith-based groups to other community programs like food banks and food programs that happen in that space. And so that space will remain and it will okay. remain available to the community for the long term. And, and so, so where do people live? Like do you build new buildings? We, we build around the, typically we're building around the existing space. Often we're right sizing it, but many of these spaces have additional density and we're able to unlock that okay. potential of the density to, to build housing. Okay, so th- that's interesting. So you're basically getting rezoning for like, you're going to see, oh, there's a three-story townhouse that's coming up on, on what would have been, you know, the glebe or the, the, the part, you know, outside the church, that area, right? Absolutely. Yeah. That, that's, that's a lot of what our work is, is. So how do we sort of gentle densify these sites, um, keeping within the existing neighborhood, but providing more options? And, and really, it's unlocking that potential of this land. That's uh, how many churches are there like this? Uh, you know, we're, we're working right now um, across the country uh, on 25 different projects. Uh, but I think the potential uh, is significant uh, that we can keep growing and building on this. You know, we're at the very beginning of our journey and we know it's a long journey, um, but it's it's exciting. It's just a huge, I think, land bank uh, that can be that can be really unlocked. 
for that common good over the long term. I, I, I like that. I haven't heard that term. So it's a land, church properties, where you can't fill the pews anymore. As I speak to uh, Tim Blair, the CEO of Kindred Works, it's a land bank. It's just uh, you've banked all this land. You've got to unlock it and basically rezone it for living. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, good luck. When, when is the first one done? What's the deadline for the first project? So we're working with municipalities uh, across the country to advance the planning uh, on these, but we're hoping to have shovels in the ground this fall and, and the first residents uh, living uh, in our units by 2024. Tim Blair, CEO of Kindred Works. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Awesome. Thanks, Evan. Take care. Oh, that's cool. A land bank. So you get these church properties. There's no one in the pews. They can't fill the pews. So what do you do with it? Do you just sell it off or do you turn it into something that's at least spiritually or philosophically aligned with what the original intention was? Some kind of sustainable living. And uh, so the, the, the United Church is doing that. How interesting is that? I, I, I mean, I'd love to hear from you on that. Do you like that idea? It's affordable housing, or at least a lot of it is. Uh, it's attainable housing for a lot of people. Um, it's density. It's run by the church, but in a separate way. Seven ten ten. What do you think about transforming church properties into this kind of sustainable housing, um, with you know different than your landlord? I think it's a really interesting idea. Unlocking the land bank. I really like that. All right, coming up, though, we've got a great story. The War Room is coming up, and we'll talk about that. By the way, breaking news, the Liberals are making an announcement about access to abortion. Timing is everything. Of course, they're doing it on the night of the Conservative debate. But we're going to go to Fogo Island, where the last doctor is about to leave. What if you lived in a community with no doctor? Wait till you hear this. Making sense of the latest news. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. Access to a doctor. So critical. I remember when we uh, moved to Ottawa many years ago and my wife, you know, we had two little kids and, and my wife was like, God, we need a family doctor. How important is it to have a family doctor? We finally got one. And Dr. Mankle, by the way, I'll just give him a shout out. The guy's incredible. I mean, we won the lottery because we love our family doctor and he's been nothing short of remarkable. So, you know, we just don't shout out to our family doctors. Dr. Fauzi Menkel, a thank you. You are phenomenal. Um, but if you live in Fogo Island, now Fogo Island is a very remote part of Newfoundland, in the province of Newfoundland, Labrador, and it's a beautiful part of the island. But the mayor of Fogo, Andrew Shea, has just announced that the Fogo Island Health Clinic will be losing its last doctor in June. And the mayor, Shea, joins us now. Hello, sir. Hello, how are you doing? Well, I'm good. And um, Fogo Island's an offshore island on Newfoundland and Labrador. Can you tell us, for, for a lot of folks, they may have heard about it because it's got a very famous hotel, but tell us where Fogo is and how remote it is. Well, it's it's off the northeast coast of Newfoundland. It's a uh... An hour's drive from Gander and an hour on the ferry, so we're two hours away from Gander, basically. Uh, I, lovely island. 
How, how it's beautiful. It's a, I mean, it's remarkable. I've been out to Newfoundland Labrador. I've never actually been to Fogo, Mayor. I'd love to go, but it's pretty remote. How many people live there? Uh, 2,117 from the last census. It's a fairly big island. We got uh, 10 communities, uh, but we're all amalgamated. We amalgamated a few years ago. We combined all our services, so we're one community now, the community of the town of Fogo Island. Yeah, and, and I, you know people know the Fogo Island Inn because it's it's very beautiful, very famous. Uh, many famous people have stayed there. It's quite expensive there. But that's why mo- most people outside of Fogo have heard about it because of the Fogo Island Inn. Tell me about the health care. Like, what's happening to your doctor? Well, we, we had a hospital, a new hospital built a few years ago, so we pretty well got a new facility. And uh, over the years, it's been declining. We've had as high as three doctors down to two, now down to one. And, of course, he had he was on 24-7, and he's finally decided to leave this year in June. So we have uh, uh, no doctor now at all. So coming the, first, coming the, the middle of June, we'll have, we got seven weeks, weeks of locums arranged. That's about it. And after that, it's going to be like a, a, vir- a virtual service, you know, where you get a call by phone. And what happens if you don't have a doctor on Fogo Island, sir? Well, uh, if there's no doctor for locums and things like that, an advanced paramedic may come to the hospital, and they have a system set up in Central that uh, this paramedic can phone the, this center, and the doctor will tell him what he can do uh, to help the patient who is in an emergency. But, uh, you know, there's, only, there's limited what a paramedic can do, so there's only certain things he can do, so it, it's a downgrade. But if we don't have a paramedic, then our, our emergency part of the hospital is shut down completely, and uh, if you phone an ambulance, the ambulance takes you to the nearest hospital, which is Gander, which is probably four hours away. So if you're having a stroke or a heart attack or something serious, I, I don't think you're going to make it or you're going to have damage done that you will, will never be repaired, you know. In other words, if you don't get a doctor, people might die. People will die, not might, will. Because you can't have a heart, or, a heart attack or a stroke and get to the, get to the Gander, you know. Because in the middle of the night, our ferries are linked to the island, but our ferry is not crewed in the middle of the night. So if someone gets a heart attack in the middle of the night, the crew has to be called in to go on the ferry first before the ferry can go. So, so you know, this this would take five hours before you get to Gander. How can you get a doctor? I mean, you know everybody's thinking about the very great 2013 Canadian film called The Grand Seduction, where, guess what? Yeah. A town in Newfoundland and Labrador needs to get a doctor, so they try to seduce uh, a mainlander to become and be the doctor uh, in Ticklehead, which is, of course, the fictional town there. But, but like, how are you going to get a doctor? What's the Grand Seduction plan here? Well, you know, this is we're going to do some advertising on our own, the, the community itself. Central Health is looking for doctors, of course, but we're going to advertise Fogo Island as a place to come, you know. This is a great place to rear a family. We have a beautiful hospital. We have uh, there's no problem with with accommodations. We got two houses right next to the hospital for the doctors. They come and move into the house. The school is right across the street from the hospital. Great place to rear up kids. We got beautiful uh, trails and walking area, and we're one of the places where the icebergs come to visit us every summer. It's a it's a beautiful spot. So I, I'm amazed that there's no one coming here. You know, just for the lifestyle. Well, okay, so this is what we're doing now. Um, the mayor of Fogo Island, Andrew Shea, is with me. If you're a doctor listening, I want yep. you to listen to the pitch. You can work where you're working. Fogo Island, home of one of the most famous hotels in the world. Why is it in Fogo Island? Because it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. They've got a brand new hospital. They need a doctor. 
Uh, yep. Mayor Shea, if there's a we're, we're broadcasting across the country. You are talking to British Columbia. You are talking to Quebec. You are talking all across Ontario. If you're a young doctor, if you're any doctor out there, and you want a, a place to live, what if someone says, I'll do it for two years? Would you take them? Oh, definitely. Okay, so someone could. So, if what if you're just out of medical school, you're looking for a post to get your feet for a couple? Would you take her? Yes. In fact, we're hoping by being on radio that there's some doctors who will want to come for a locum. If we can get you here for a month or two months, you may stay. You know, okay. this is this is a nice place. There's no crime here. There's you know a beautiful area to live. Your children can roam around the communities, and you know it's just just. Uh, Fabulous place. Okay, make the pitch. Where do they live? If you're a doctor listening and you want, this is a community that desperately needs a doctor. Okay, make the pitch. Yep. What are they? Where could they live? Do they get accommodations paid for? What's the salary yep. like? Make the pitch, uh, Mayor. Uh, the, the, in fact, I, I can't tell you the salary right now, but uh, the government has just signed a, de- a deal with the medical association, and the, and the salaries have increased for places like this, outlying areas. You get a bonus, uh, and there's extra money now for locums. So, and not only that, but but your house is right next to the hospital. If you're on call, you can go over to bed and go to sleep because you can get up and uh, be called right away, and it's only a minute you walk over to the hospital. You don't even have to be in the hospital uh, if you're on call. It's, it's, you know, it's an ideal situation. But okay. we need more than one. We need two. You need two doctors. Of course, because if, if you're one doctor here, you've got to be uh, on call for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and and you can't do that. That's why they leave because of the situation that's brought on to us by uh, by no doctors. I don't I don't know what's caused it, but you know, we need two doctors. That way, then one relieves the other, and and you've got a good lifestyle. So we're the, the life doctors. is good. I mean, I mean, I tell you, I, I wish I was a doctor. I'd go to Fogo. Like it's a beautiful yeah. place. Oh, it is, and and you know, like it's a lovely place in the winter time. If you like winter, there's you know ice fishing and skidooing and. You know, a lot of good things happening. We got a nice arena right across from the hospital. Mayor, you Mayor, know. you can't say if you like winter. You better like winter. You're not yeah. moving to Fogo Island if you don't like winter. Yeah, but you know, like, uh, but but you know, it's a lifestyle, and I'm sure there's people out there who like this lifestyle. People are moving to rural areas now. You know, how's and, the, how's uh, the but, internet? How's the broadband there? Oh, broadband is good, but sure, you can get uh, the internet now. You can pay a hundred, six hundred dollars to get it installed and. In, uh, I got it for my grandchild. It's six hundred dollars in styles, one hundred and twenty dollars a month. Uh, our internet is high speed, but it's high speed uh, in I don't know whose language, but it is high speed. But you can get this here. That's like same thing as in Ontario. Nice, Fogo Island. Need, Fogo Island needs two doctors, folks. Yep. It's a beautiful place. Google Fogo Island. Andrew yep. Shea is the mayor. If they if they're interested, who can they contact, Mayor? Well, they, they can contact me if they want to. You throw out, throw, throw out the number. Just go for it. What the heck? Uh, my number is 709-727-5758. All right. If you are a or, doctor, go to Fogo. It's paradise. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. What's the uh, secret to politics? Timing. Timing. Look, uh, it is no surprise that the liberals have decided to make an announcement on funding access to abortion and cracking down on guns the night of the conservative, only conservative leadership debate in Edmonton. 
will just, they're like, oh, well, you know, remember those key issues, one that may have cost Aaron O'Toole the election, guns, and abortion that cost Andrew Scheer the election. We'll just make some announcements on there. We'll throw it out there. Conservatives, talk amongst yourselves. We won't intrude. And conservatives will talk amongst themselves at 8 tonight in Edmonton. And that is why we have the war room to talk about all of this. Let me be perfectly clear. Putting out misinformation. And we hear that. Misleading politics. What's really important here. Spreading it online. Unequivocally. The War Room. Tom Mulcair, CTV political analyst, former NDP leader. He's been in these debates. Tim Powers, chairman of Summa Strategies, managing director of Abacus Data. And in Alberta, Ground Zero, Zane Velji, the political campaign strategist, partner at Northweather, who's trained the likes of Nia Denshi and Rachel Notley to do these things. Uh, good afternoon, uh, three gents, three good gents. Hello, hello, hello. What do we expect tonight, Mr. Velji? I expect a lot of the same. I hate to kind of burst the bubble for folks that may have wanted a more civil debate. They may have wanted a more coherent or cogent debate. I think it's going to be the continuation of Pierre Polyev's purity exercise. And I think this is going to be a debate stage where folks try to continue to run, at least some of the key folks, uh, try to run for who's in the room versus perhaps who's watching on screen. And so... You know, I, I look at Jean Charest's built to win and I see uh, Pierre Polyev now matching him with his built to destroy, which is I, I really don't care about the scorched earth. I don't care how big the blast zone is. If I need to go further to the right to win this room, I'll do it. If I need to be a petulant child in how I interrogate my competitors on stage, I'll do it. I don't expect him to change strategy. And because he won't strange change strategy and he's a front runner, I expect the tone to be quite similar to what we experienced uh, in Ottawa with the uh, strong and free network debate. Oh, Tom, you call that tone? Um, I, I don't know. If, if, if you could say the tone of that cage match, the tone of that mixed martial arts. <laughs> the, tone, the tone of that sharp elbow yeah, where, where, I, where I, blood I, was being. Yeah. yeah, I remember when that shark bit my leg. Oh, how was his tone? It was, it was sharp. It was sharp. Tom, Tom, what's your take? Well, I have a slightly different take from Zane on this one. I have a feeling that the people around Poilier realized he might have been a bit too hot last time. I don't know if you caught this bit, but it was actually my favorite part. But it was Marcel Marceau. It was our friend Poilier at the end of the debate bombing out his chest and throwing back his shoulders and just strutting <laughs> off as if to say, did you see that? And for me, that was a summary of Pierre Poilier. That Pierre Poilier is going to be talking to a much larger mainstream primetime audience tonight and if that guy shows up and Charette continues to chip away and just say, look, this guy's not serious. He just said last uh, on that show with Evan Solomon on the weekend, he said what about the Bank of Canada, that they were financially illiterate. It works. He gets David Dodge out s- screaming at him. Everybody reacts. So as far as his front runner approach works, that's fine because people are talking about him. But now he's got to change tone and change tune because he wants people to actually see him <laughs> as material to become the Prime Minister of a G7 country. It's going to sound like a bit of a stretch, but I watched Del Duca yesterday do very well in the Northern Ontario debate because he was doing something very different from Andrea Horvath. Andrea, my quite like, showed up with all of her favorite lines from being in opposition. The problem, of course, she's supposed to be convincing people she can be the Premier of Ontario. Del Duca was doing that. Now, Kwadiev has to try to steal a little bit of that page from Charre because Charre will continue to predict, project, I'm a serious mm-hmm. contender, I can run this country, I know what I'm doing, 
this guy's a clown. And that's what Kordiev has to be mm-hmm. there for. I think that the Jenny Burns of this world will be trying to reel him in. I don't know if they're going to succeed, but they're going to try to do it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I've been to Marineland. I've seen a dolphin jump through a hoop, but not a shark, Tim. But you go for it. What, 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 was, what, was, the, what was the tone of that? Uh... What was the tone of that? The tone was, I need a new leg. Uh, Tim, Tim and, and there's the Patrick Brown wild card. What are you, what are you looking for tonight? Well, I hear Vince McMahon of the World Wrestling Entertainment <laughs> can replace Tom Clark as the debate moderator, Evan, and I hear the central issue of the debate will be one around pay equity, you being inequitably treated compared to Tom Brady's new broadcasting <laughs> salary. But, yes. but beyond that, beyond that, I, I kind of was saying I, 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 Tom is right in terms of what the polyev strategy ought to be. If I'm Polyev, though, and, and I've seen a lot of his people, and there are capable people there, but I think they we reinforce each other's worst uh, prescriptions of behavior when it comes to these sorts of events. Because if you look at the fanboys and girls around Pierre Polyev after the last debate, they thought it was awesome. They loved it. They thought, you know, Pierre had pulverized his opponents. Can they break away from that? You mentioned the other element. How is Patrick Brown going to change the dynamic? You have to imagine that Pierre Polyev, who doesn't seem to personally like Patrick Brown anyway, is going to go after him a little bit. Because as we've said on this panel before, it's unknown where Patrick is. It's assumed he's doing reasonably well, so they're going to want to get his gloves on him. Charest going to have a different dynamic with all of that. So I'm kind of with Zane. I think this still stays a bit topsy-turvy because there is an appetite, and you saw some apologists come out and try and reinforce us last week, that last week was great. It wasn't. It was terrible. It was crap. But there are people that think it was good, and a lot of them cheerlead for Pierre. Yeah, but Pierre Pierre's an unapologetic conservative. I, I, I just don't think he can try to be above the fray. He's, 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 he started his campaign um, attacking Zane, and, and even this week, uh, he was with one of the trucker organizers from Quebec. He was talking about the World Economic Forum. He was slamming back at David Dodge, saying, I've just got started after David Dodge, former Bank of Canada governor, called called the his comments BS. I just think there's that dynamic. And and, and then Patrick Brown's got to show up, and, and Andrew Sh- and um, Jean Charest's got to survive. Well, absolutely. And if you're Charest here, like to Tom's point, he is chipping away, but chipping away at what, right? Like when you have Pierre in that room, you have to start thinking of new tactics and strategies in order to start defeating him both on stage, but I think perhaps even more importantly, uh, for the post-debate clips, right? And I think if you see more of that petulance uh, that that you saw from Pierre Polyev, that that interrogation on stage of answering the question, I think that's where Sheree has the opportunity to just frankly ignore it, just to be like, "Are you done with your temper tantrum? You know, are you done with the the way you're behaving right now?" And answer the question to the people watching at home. I think what can really happen tonight is a couple of things. Number one, everyone can either get sucked into the room and play for that room and not realize the damage that they have done to their candidacy for those that are watching and and what will be clipped afterwards. And number two, what I also slightly suspect is that despite Pierre continuing on his track, I think some of the other candidates will just start doing fringe festival style monologues to the screen, ignoring what's happening and just saying, this is my way to get my message out. Why, Why not? Why debate? 
against this right. person if I can just do simple monologues to the screen. And that's, you know, what we're going to see because we, as much as we have multiple people on stage, we arguably have multiple parties mm. on stage trying to find their own airtime for different focal points of this conservative movement. Yeah. And Tom, doesn't it, I mean, isn't it target over tone? The strategy is you're targeting member conservatives to vote for you. You're not targeting the country in this debate. You're targeting get members to win the leadership. Right. But if the average Canadian who might lean a little bit right, who might mm. be watching tonight, sees the Pierre Poilievre that we saw last time, the answer is going to be, this guy's not serious. This is not serious stuff. And it's very hard to shake that sort of image problem. So that's why Charest, I believe, you know, despite the fact I've had, anybody who knows our history, I've had very serious set-tos with Jean Charest over the years. But I still see in him someone with the depth of experience and expertise to be able to plausibly say, I can run this country. For Poiliev to be out there pitching his stuff about Bitcoin, replacing the Bank of Canada, saying that they're a bunch of financial illiterates, look at his CV. He didn't have a two-line CV when he went into this stuff, and he's got zero experience and zero expertise in financial matters. That's going to start to shine through, that he's just that petulant kid. You know, he's the kid with the bow tie who fought back at everybody in high school because he was the only conservative. He loves that role. He loves to be the one who's getting beaten up. But it's, it's going to have to change. And that's why I'm sticking to my guns. I think that you're going to see a real change in his tone tonight because he wants people to at least realize that he's not just the smarty pants and nobody likes the smarty pants. He's uh, not just that guy. He, he's actually got self Okay, hang on. Keep, not, you, keep he's not your, shown so far. Keep your briefcase open, War Room. We're coming back. your world changes we adapt to get your answers now more with evan solomon welcome back you are inside the war room with our three brothers in arms zane velji tom mulcair and tim powers where we discuss all the political news of the day yes there is an ontario election going on and Doug Ford still remains the leader for the progressive conservatives and then the liberals and the ndp are battling it out hoping to tighten the race but you've got a conservative debate, the only conservative leadership debate um, in Edmonton tonight. We'll have special coverage on CTV as well. Um, I'm gonna, t- Tim, I, I didn't get a chance to do a second round with you. Um, Leslie Lewis, to me, as a social conservative, has changed the debate. She's no longer offering the social conservative vote as, you know, we're going to start strong, then we'll give down-ballot support. When she wheeled on Pierre Polyevre in the first debate... Questioning not only his loyalty to the trucker protest, which is kind of stunning, but demanding his position on abortion. Uh, are you pro-life or pro-choice? Um, I think he was stunned. What did it tell you about her role in this and, and maybe down-ballot support for Mr. Polyev? Uh, that she feels she's in it to win it. Um, uh, she has some confidence. How she's going to build that coalition, I don't know. Uh, and then if he wants her support, he's got a lot of work to do to, to, to get it and needs to be committed to that particular support that he's going to give, unlike um, the support she may have or helped influenced in giving to Aaron O'Toole. So she's sending some clear messages there. But I, I want to go back very quickly, uh, Evan, to the point of understanding a dynamic here. Look, Tom is, is right when, you, when, when you're 
you're talking about normal human beings and how they should project themselves in a debate to the rest of the country for the audience. But I think what you need to understand about the Conservative Party, which maybe I've only understood in the last couple of weeks, and that's strange given its long history. Well, we all know I'm stunned anyway, but maybe it took me this long to figure out is this, that Pierre is so determined to sell he's against the grain uh, that he's so against elites, of which we would all be considered uh, in that particular classing, that it's okay to be angry. It's okay to foment mm. anger. It's okay to be rude, as we would view it. It's okay to be a goon uh, and engage in what I would describe as more goonery in these debates, because that's who the image he's projecting, at least in the immediate term, to the people he needs to win. And if he steps away from that... That's a problem for him, I believe. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Go ahead, Zane. You know, I was going to add, because Tom and I at the break were talking about, you know, who are these debates for? And I know you asked, Evan, you know, the targeting really matters or who you're targeting to. And the conventional wisdom is that this debate is for the membership. Of course, there's a leadership race. This is for the membership. I think, however, it's changed because... It, this is not this is not for the membership because many of them have already made up their mind. They're there to cheer their person on. This may not even be for that person at home watching. You know who this is for? This is for the archives. This is for the, the number one way that most of us will see clips from this debate across this country is probably in a liberal or an NDP attack ad. It's probably paid media that people will clip out and, and distribute on their terms to showcase who these individuals are. So if I'm in that room today, you know, I kind of go back on my point a bit to say, I think Pierre can't help himself. He's going to present as pugilistic and about purity. But I think these competitors on the stage need to realize who and how these will actually be consumed in the long run and never lose sight of that, that ultimate target audience. Yeah. Can I just play something that's just come in? I'm speaking to Zane Velji, Tom Mulcair, and Tim Powers. And Tom, uh, we talk about what's... Uh, Tim mentioned something, you know, this notion of attacking elites. A couple things. First of all, we know Pierre Polyevre, elected at 25, had a full pension by the age of 31. So... Let's be clear here. Um, you know, hands up, listeners, if you have a full pension by the age of 31. But okay, he won elections. That's the drill. But like the idea that he's not part of some elite is is a bit of a joke. But but uh, Jugmeet Singh was just at a at a, an event in Peterborough, Ontario. When he exited the room, he was confronted by these uh, trucker protesters, and they hate him. They were screaming at him. And I'm going to play something. They surrounded him. They told him, F you. They gave him the finger. They pounded on his car. I want to play you just one clip of it because I just wonder what is being unleashed. Check this out. And, and I'm not going to play clip. I'm not going to play the second clip because there's too wow. many f bombs. And again, look, people have the right to do this, but you're giving the finger, you're slamming on the car, you're saying, "Listen, I, like if this is the last debate, Tom, if that's how conservatives talk amongst conservatives, how do you talk to people who you disagree with? Like, I just like, are we on the precipice of of cracking into something totally different here? Yeah, and and things really are changing. Mm. I always try to say that. People used to get together in their little chat rooms and say crazy stuff amongst themselves, but they're starting to flow out of their computer screens. But I will disagree with my friend Evan on one thing. You're not allowed to do that. This is a politician duly elected in the execution of his duties. And no, you're not allowed to be banging on his car and 
threatening them. No, that's a fundamental breach of some rules in our society. No, but you can say F you, why why did you do it? But you're right, you're right, they're rules, yeah. (laughs) If I had 25% 25 every time I was told that, then I would have had You would have had a pension by 31 times. (laughs) (laughs) If F you was a cryptocurrency, you'd be rich. Yeah, but this is going to also, I mean, we talk about the fact that the liberals are having press conferences today about abortions, and about guns. Right. And what do we see here? An attack by a group against uh, Jagmeet Singh, who, of course, is in lockstep with Trudeau for the next few years. And I think that this is also going to play into tonight's debate and the perception of people. And the big difference, and I was listening to Tim, he's, I, I, you know, very smart analysis, but the big difference between the first debate, which was mm-hmm. basically a home game for Pierre Poiliev, Candace Malcolm, Jamil Giovanni, you know, stoking the crowd, the crowd screaming back at Charette, drowning him out when he simply said the obvious, this was illegal, blocking all the streets of Ottawa, and saying you wouldn't leave till the government was replaced. Come on, that's illegal. And so if that's the crowd that Poiliev thinks is going to help him become Prime Minister of Canada, he's delusional. Um, Let me just go back to this. Um, Maybe, Zane, you can help me. If you're a Conservative and you're looking around at who's winning, you've lost every election since 2015, you're you're going through leaders like I go through uh, bananas, and you're thinking to myself, like, I got to win. Doug Ford's in the lead. Guess what? He was Mm -hmm. supported the Emergency Act, supported mandates, and he could win Ontario again, likely will. Uh, Quebec is ruled by a politician who had mandates and cracked down on... Like, these are Conservatives who are winning... Why aren't why isn't there a conservative saying like I'd like to win like Doug Ford and uh, and Michelle Legault? Well, on the national stage, they'll say that Aaron O'Toole and Andrew Shear were that case study and it doesn't work. And so we need to go with purity. We need to go with edge. We need to go with uh, a different attitude uh, to what we try to, to win over. And, and I think perhaps at the end of the day. Uh, they might be right on the national stage. L- listen, the, the math, many may argue, saying where does it make sense that a conservative party leans further to the right and then wins over the lower mainland or the GTA? Like, how does that work? But I also think it's it's tone and, to Tim's point, anger, not just a, a, about elites, but about issues. And this is where I think issue-based voters, those individuals, the young couple, the older generation that is worried about retirement, about affordability, about solutions, what Pierre Polyev gives to them is a new, I'm going to go back to it, Evan, tone, a new way to speak, a permissible sort of um, a social acceptability on anger and saying, but I've got solutions for you. And I think rather than the left and right, there's a tone up and top and bottom class narrative that he's playing very smartly that I think is what they hope is the the attractive magnet to this conservative movement, uh, less so a, a Ford or Legault style model, model to be a little bit more PC uh, than, than hard right. I got a minute. Tom, did you want to jump? Well, I just Tom, believe t- that the big difference but the big difference between the first one, which was Poiliev in his hometown and his home base, and this one, which is to a national audience, primetime TV, I think that's going to play into how they behave. And, and I think we'll see a slightly different approach by Poiliev. But, hey, maybe I'll be proven completely wrong and the Tim, guys will be right that he's going to be over the top. Yeah, we'll see. I, I think, one, uh, Tim, you have uh, 10 seconds left. Well, prior to the conservative problem is there's no Ron Ambrose, there's no uh, there's no John Reynolds, there's no calming influence inside to stop to say stop fighting all the time and focus on the future and remember the past too. Right. Yeah, I think you, Zane, but you did make a good point. When the liberals are out there saying there's nothing we can do about inflation, there's nothing we can do about supply chains, nothing we, you know, 
eventually people want to vote for a solution, not yep. for helplessness, no matter what it is. Yeah. Uh, okay, yep. the, Zane, Tim, Tom, great to have you. We'll be watching tonight. Uh, one of the great swimmers in the world. Next. Finding answers to all your questions. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. Well, I mean, I really don't think I can sell this next part of our program better than Olympic champion and puppies. Like, what else do you want? A gold medal from the Olympics and a puppy. Two of the greatest things in the world. And that is the story of Penny Alexiak. Yes, she's the world swimming champion. Yes, she's the most decorated Olympian in Canadian history. Yes, you probably know Penny because of her remarkable performances in uh, the Olympics. But guess what? She's now surrounded by a puppy. Why? Because she is partnering with the Royal Home for Every Pet Project to support 100 animal shelters to give forever homes to 100,000 Canadian cats and dogs. So you get pets, because I love cats and dogs, and I love sports, and then you get Penny Alexiak. Hi, Penny. Hi, how are you guys? Holy Mackinac. Gold medals and puppies. Who? I, I hear the puppy in the background. Who's that? Um, That is my roommate and I's latest addition, who we just got from a shelter named Cujo. <laughs> Cujo. Cujo. Penny. Cujo? <laughs> I know, I know. That we did it because she's so sweet and she's so kind. She's so, so non Cujo. It just makes sense. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, how did Okay, I want to talk Olympics in a minute, but how did you get involved in this? Have you always been crazy for pets and, and cats and dogs? Um, yeah, I mean, I think if you know me, you know I'm always surrounded by animals and my family has a million cats and dogs all together and we call our cottage the ranch because that's where we send all of our dogs when we leave um town so i mean it's it's just so important to me to be surrounded by animals and have that kind of companionship and it's just it's so nice <laughs> okay so so when you were growing up because everyone knows you as a champion swimmer and a killer competitor but oh. like how many pets did you have growing up um, we had quite a lot. Um, we had two cats when I was younger and then um my parents got our dog Yager, who my brother named after Yarmir Yager. Um and great hockey we, fan, right? Exactly. So we had Yager for a while and then um we got Franklin who is on Alder Royale packaging right now and it's really crazy and um after Franklin, we got Rio, my cat, and um, yeah, we have a lot more after that. But we, yeah, those are all of our like adopted um, pups and Cujo as well. So lots of adopted animals at our house. And so, and so, and so, and would you just keep adopting? What's the limit? What's the Alexiak limit? Or are you going for the world record? Um, I think I've already actually passed the limit as for my parents. They keep telling me to stop getting dogs. Um, but to me, I don't think there is a limit, really. Oh, my God. But, <laughs> like, okay, but you're training all the time. So, I mean, yeah. it. who takes care of your animals? 
I mean, you are still swimming. You want to compete in the next Olympics, I assume, right? Yeah, for sure. And the world championship. You probably have a brutal, grueling schedule. How do you take care of your pets? Um, I mean, I'm always home when I'm not at training. And if any of my friends ever want to hang out, they always know that they have to come to my house because puppy therapy is the best. Um, but when I'm out of town, um, Cujo stays here with my roommate and then Bean will usually go to the ranch and my parents have a lot of land over there. So all the dogs just run around and it's all fenced in. So it's, it's really nice to kind of have that. Okay. I I'm speaking to, uh, Penny Alexiak, the most decorated Olympian in Canadian history, and she's surrounded by dogs and cats. And I get that. J- j- I have a dog and a cat. What, yeah. Let me just ask you, Penny, because this is a hard question. I get asked it. I want to know your answer. Do you prefer cats or dogs? Uh, I feel like I might be more of a dog person, but I also really love cats. My roommate has a cat, and we have Rio, the cat that I got uh, after the Rio Olympics when I came home for two days. Um, but I think cats can be really sweet and adorable, but I just, I love dogs. They're so fun. (laughs) Okay. So Penny, let me ask you about the role that pets play in mental health. And I think this is actually really key. You're a high performing athlete. You must be exhausted. The stress of competing is, is very real. Do your relationship with animals, does that actually help you as a high performance athlete? like to say so yeah I think um just knowing that whether you get an Olympic gold medal or you don't even make an Olympic final and you come home and your pets are always going to have the same reaction to you I think that's really reassuring and really nice to know that like they're never going to judge you you're always going to have that consistency with them to come home and take them for a walk feed them and they're going to be happy you know so I think it's just really It's just so nice to kind of be able to have that and have that with an animal and be able to give that to an animal, you know? You you, you seem like you've been around forever. What are you? Are you 21 years old now? Yes, I am. Holy crap. Almost 22. Talk about the magic year, Penny Alexiak, of 2016, the Summer Olympics. You'd already come off the world junior swimming championship where you cleaned up, like all of a sudden you were, you were, you were a star, but 2016, your life changes at the summer Olympics. You win four medals. You're the youngest champion. You win the gold in the hundred meter freestyle. Like it, I mean, I remember it. It was, it was a bonkers moment and you were young. Talk about how that changed your life. The summer of 2016. Um, I mean, I don't even know where to begin with that I I think my life would be totally different now than what it was then I think I've had the opportunity and I've had the chance to experience so many things that I never ever ever would have experienced and I've been able to meet so many crazy people and it's just I I think my life would have been completely different and um, I'm so grateful to like even be in the position I'm in right now was it hard? Like, the world turned a hot spotlight on you. I mean, you start winning crazy things. You know, the gold, the silver, the two bronzes. You're, I think you were like 16 at the time, right? Yeah, exactly. Or I guess, yeah, I think maybe 15 and then six. I mean, it was bonkers. Like, at one point, was it hard to handle, Penny? Were you kind of 
uh, I can't handle this. And did it not? Because it just seemed you'd never been knocked off your stride as an athlete. It didn't phase you. Mm. Um, yeah, I think, honestly, I did really, really struggle at one point. Um, it's a lot to throw at a 16-year-old kid. And when you're in that phase of your life where you're trying to figure things out, trying to figure out who, what kind of people you like, who your friends are, what kind of person you are, um, it's really hard to just then throw someone into this position where now all of a sudden everyone wants to be your friend. And now all of a sudden, like you don't even know who you are as a person and how people want you to act might be different than how you actually are, you know? So I think it, it did take a bit of a toll on me for a couple of years, but then, um, kind of 2019, 2020, um, especially when the pandemic hit, I really, really took time to focus on my mental health, especially when I was out of the pool for like five months in 2020. So I really just took that time to focus on myself and focus on my mental health because I just know the importance of mental health and like athletics, I guess, altogether. It's, it's all tied into one. So you can't really be good if your head's not in it. So I had to really focus on that. Yeah, I can only imagine. In a weird way, the pandemic may have helped. Just mm -hmm. you find probably because you never get out of the pool and just yeah. just kind of no, but you know, just finally say, okay, I'm going to take a breath. The whole, again, yeah. the whole world is. Penny, hang on. I'm going to take a break. We are back with Canada's most decorated Olympian, the swimming sensation, the gold medalist, Penny Alexiak. She is now working, uh, partnering with Royal Home for Every Pet Project to support over 100,000 animal, 100 animal shelters and find homes for 100,000 Canadian cats and dogs. So we've got puppies, we've got cats, Ooh. and we've got an Olympic champion. Like, you got to come back for that. Stay with us. As this story changes, we react. This is the Evan Solomon Show. Welcome back to the program. We are delighted to welcome into the uh, big show Penny Alexiak, the most decorated Olympian in the country, in our history, world champion. And, of course, now she's working with the Royal Home for, for Every Pet Project to get 100 animal shelters and find homes for 100,000 cats and dogs who need adoption every year. Penny, um, uh, we all watch you swim and and race, and it's incredible. And and you're like six foot one, but your brother, who plays in the NHL, is six foot seven. He plays for the Seattle Kraken. Yes. Can you just tell us, like, how tall are your parents? Like, I'm six four. I thought I was big. Six seven, six one. Like, are you guys from a family of giants? <laughs> um, my dad is pretty tall. Yeah, my dad's like six, seven, six, eight, around there. And then my mom is, is, she's the smallest one in our family. She's like five, seven, maybe. Oh yeah. my God. Tiny. I know. She's a in gremlin. She's <laughs> five, seven. And she's like the tiny one. Yeah, exactly. But you're, are you, is everyone like, I, I guess you're the youngest, but super athletic family. Was that right? Yeah. Growing up, we, um, we're kind of like just, given the best opportunity my parents tried to give us to succeed. And I think 
um, in doing so, it really just motivated us all to be the best we could. And I guess in turn, that made us good athletes. <laughs> How did you find swimming? You know, what was it? Your mom's a swimmer? Um, yeah, my mom used to be a swimmer um, a while back, but I honestly, I was doing dance and ballet and everything at the time. And I just wanted to quit doing that. And my mom told me I had to find something else to do. So I decided on swimming and um, she signed me up for some competitive team tryouts and I got denied by three different clubs at first. And then I went to this one small club torch and they opened like welcomed me with open arms and then they really helped me out. Do you ever go back to those old clubs and be like, hi, you turned down the Beatles? (laughs) (laughs) I honestly couldn't even tell you what clubs they tried out for. That's so funny. Can you imagine turning out, hey, I remember that kid, Penny Alexia, I gave you, she has no future in swimming. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Um, Now that you've done, you know, like when you've won seven medals, okay, and now you've got another season coming up, Penny. Like, yeah. does the pressure grow? I mean, then it was like, you know, you're young, you have nothing to lose, you're just going for it. It's 2016. Um, yeah. Does the pressure grow? Um, I mean, I think the pressure was definitely growing going into 2020 just because there was that excitement and that, like, nervousness to get seven medals, and I really wanted to do it, so... And I knew I could, so I was really working towards it. And, I mean, in my last couple races, I was incredibly nervous for it. But I think um, now that I'm kind of there, I think I'm I'm just really working on seeing how good of an athlete I could really become. I think I'm less focused on trying to hit a certain landmark of medals anymore. I think I'm just kind of trying to see how good I could could possibly be. But, but I mean... Do you only swim for gold? I remember speaking, I, I went on a run with Clara Hughes once, the great Canadian yeah. Olympian. You probably know Clara, you know, the speed yeah. skater and the cyclist, also a great Olympian, okay? Yeah, exactly. And I said to Clara, like, what is your, what was your greatest race? And she said it wasn't her gold medal race. She said it actually was a bronze. And she said, I just was in the zone. She goes, you know, everyone thinks you're racing for gold, and you kind of are, but you're also racing for the perfect race, which is just where everything's smooth, in your yeah. mind. And, and she said, so the greatest race I ever, uh, re- uh, you know, in her case, skated was actually the bronze race. She said that was the perfect skate for me. How do you mm-hmm. swim? Do you swim for gold or do you swim for the perfect race? Um, I think I kind of just, I don't know. I think for me, it's just about getting my hand on the wall. I think if I'm able to get my hand on the wall first, I'm more than happy if I get my hand on the wall last. Um, if I really just put in as much effort as I could have, and like if I can turn around and look at my race and find mistakes and be able to work towards something else, I think for me that's also a good thing. So I think it's for me, it's just I like to race in general. I'm not really racing for something in specific. I think I'm always able to kind of turn it around and find something good out of almost every race. And, and do you, when you're racing, are you thinking about the other lanes or are you just in your lane? Like you literally stay in your lane. I think I race better when I'm just in my lane in 2020 um, for the 200 free race. I was really just trying to focus on not caring about anyone else, just focusing on my race. And that worked out really well for me actually. Yeah. But I think sometimes it's hard, especially in a hundred free when you flip turn and you 
see everyone ahead of you and you're just like, okay, now we got to go, you know? So I think it's, I, I, it's kind of a mix for me, but. Well, man, 2020 was, was incredible. Uh, for you as well. No, it was. How did the pandemic change you? Uh, you talked about you kind of got a chance to work on your mental health and to kind of refocus. Did the pandemic, um, what kind of impact has this weird experience had on you as a high-performing athlete? I think the main impact it probably had on me was just I used to really, really hate training. And I loved racing we would race like every other month and we'd fly somewhere and do a race and I really loved that um but because of the pandemic we weren't able to really race anyone we weren't able to go anywhere we just would hold small time trials in our own pool race each other so um I really just had to learn to love training and now I really really enjoy training and I think I find I get a lot out of it now and I put in a lot more effort in training and I'm more focused and um, I really enjoy that now. And racing is still fun to me, but I think I love the like journey to the goal. Wow. That's Penny Alexiak world champion. That, that, that's remarkable that you yeah. say that you love, because one boy, if you love training competitors, look out because you think you're getting better. Yeah. I mean, I'm always trying to get better. And um, I think with the team we have and being around like the world's best athletes every single day. It's it's hard to not get better. <laughs> uh, do you think so? So just getting back to this partnership with Royal home for the everyday pet project, yeah. um, how important is it when you come home from a day of swimming and, and stressed it, like literally have an animal there? Because I, you know, for me, you know, the dog walk, a dog is like a walking coach yeah. or it's actually very helpful. Yeah. I, I love it. Um, my roommate and I, we are currently outnumbered at our house, um, animals to people. So we always just love to like sit in the living room and play with the animals. And it's just, it's so nice to come home to. It's oh, like, it's always welcoming. You can't be mad when you come home to a bunch of animals that are excited to see you. And you got, and you got to get that stress-free mind. Penny, thanks for, thanks for spending time with us. Um, listen, good luck at the Olympics. Um, I know there's world championships ahead. You got a lot of training, but you never stop. You are an absolute joy and, and an inspiration to so many of us. Penny Alexiak, now that you're also, you know, working to help a hundred thousand Canadian cats and dogs find homes through the every pet project at with Royal home. Thank you so much. No, thank you. Penny Alexiak. Uh, that's great. And folks, I love that. If you can learn to love the training, then you get to finally love the spotlight. That's the difference with a great athlete. They, if you can love that training like Penny's talking about, my God, like what's next for her? Incredible. Boy, what a pleasure to hang out with Penny and Lexiak. Um, hey, we got the big conservative debate tonight. I'll have a special edition of Power Play. I'll see you at 5 and then 7.30.